Welcome to Ununinformed. I'm Sean Seavey. This is my China dream. It is gonna be hard in the middle of anti-corruption. Today I'm interviewing a rapper who's also a macroeconomist for China. In my interview with Andrew Doherty, also known as Big Daddy Doe, we'll be talking about the world economy, the pandemic, and the U.S.-China relationship. This song you hear now is from his rap hip-hop parody album he released in 2017, and that was the last time he was on the show as part of that album's debut. We talked about the U.S.-China relationship then, but how has that changed now with the pandemic? We'll talk about that and many other world economic issues. Big Daddy Doe, welcome back to the show. Thanks, man. Uh, it's great to, great to hear your voice and fun to be back with you, uh, certainly during an interesting time. Yes, for sure. I know, well, I know you're in quarantine right now, and we'll, we, I definitely want to hear your story a little bit. Um, but I kind of want to rewind what, just for me to, to remind me and listeners, what was your professional life pre-quarantine? What, what did it look like? So I'm, I'm based in Hong Kong for Capital Group. I was an economist out of Beijing for about a decade. And, and now in Hong Kong, I, uh, still with Capital, but I, I focus on, uh, investing in various sectors in Asia. But, um, you know, so, I mean, I was traveling a ton and, you know, all over Asia and, and globally. And then, you know, uh, we went to, for the holidays back to our home in upstate New York. And, uh, just about, just before we were about to come back to Hong Kong, uh, the virus shut everything down and, uh, Hong Kong schools closed down in mid January. And so we decided to, to stay in, in upstate New York and put the kids in school there. And so we did that for a couple months. And then we saw the writing on the wall coming as cases in New York started exploding. And so we made a decision to come back to Asia. <clears throat> yeah, uh, and uh, so we're back in Hong Kong now. But had Hong Kong's had some fairly strict quarantine measures in place, including uh, requiring any uh, uh, foreign, uh, well, any, anyone returning to Hong Kong having to go through a 14-day uh, very strictly enforced uh, quarantine uh, with government tracking and can't leave your home or your hotel wherever you are. And so, uh, so I'm just, I'm literally on my last day of this 14 day quarantine. Oh, th- this is great. I'm getting, uh, the, the, I, I, somehow you're surviving. <laughs> but, uh, now, and, and that's what I kind of want to talk about is, uh, how are you, I guess, COVID-19. Um, and well, actually, rather than talking about it I, why don't we uh play your rap that i that, that you wrote about uh, about a week ago I, I i could just play right here how does that sound sure hey yo what's up what's up it's big daddy doe coming at you from the marriott in hong kong ocean park marriott yo it's the quarantine rap let's put this together number one what's up I'm in quarantine, the Marriott's so luxurious But my tracking bracelet hurts, call it injurious Of the wordy Smiths, I am Stephen Curry, yes Cause how I rhyme makes the rap world so curious Zipping and zapping while I am rapping, I am the very best But I won't see the sun, I'll be wider than Andy Murray's chest 
Cause I'm 14 days in quarantine, I'm furious Cause the Don spews facts that be so spurious At least the Fauci by his side, that man's the nerdiest But jokes aside, this bonafide virus is so serious If we stay home alone, just talk on the phone, we can bury this So do your part by staying apart, and we hurry this up to resolution so we minimize the loss of life of strife of husband and wife that's right in china the divorce rate is surging every night y'all it's surging every night because when you're locked up for a month you might get in a fight or two or three down the drain goes the economy gdp small businesses people like you and me and you and me yeah Everyone in this together, you see? So we beat this first person with a unified we. That's unity. I said that's unity. And that's the cure for this awful disease. So I've been heard and I've been seen. Till next time, I'm Big Daddy Quarantine. And I'm out. Except actually, I'm in. I'm in. Nah, I'm in. Big Daddy Quarantine. I'm out. But I'm in. Nah, I'm in. It's Quarantine. Peace out, y'all. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, man. So when I listened to this rap on social media, I knew I had to have you back on the show. And, uh, and, and, and I kind of want to like pick it apart a little bit and, and kind of mix it with some of the questions I asked on Facebook. I, I reached out to some people and they have questions about uh, some of the things you're experiencing um, as an economist and seeing both the U.S.-China relationship. Um, but, but the first thing is you have a tracking bracelet? What? Yeah, man. So, um, so that's what I'm saying. Like when Hong Kong put these measures in the place, they, uh, they, uh, they got pretty serious about it. So they, 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 they banned any visitors. You can't just come to visit, but if you're a resident, you know, you have a work visa or you're a Hong Kong, uh, uh permanent resident or a citizen, then, uh, then you could come back, but you had to go into this 14 day, uh, enforced quarantine where whether you're at home or in a hotel, you're not allowed to leave. So, you put on this tracking bracelet. You download. You're forced to download an app to your. It's called Stay at Home app uh, to your phone, and then as soon as you get home, um, you have to walk. You 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 turn on the app, and then for 60 seconds, you walk around the perimeter of your apartment or your hotel room so that they can kind of geo pin your your rough uh, area that your you're fence? allowed to walk around. Yeah, your fence. Wow. Yeah, and then the health authorities call you. They confirm things and then, you know, they call you every few days to check on you and uh, see if you have any symptoms or you're, you know, you're ill. And if you, in theory, if you leave, you can, uh, you know, you can get fined and get thrown in jail. And so it's a, it's quite a, quite a strict, um, <laughs> yeah, strict thing. A, a little bit different than here. And I think, think we'll get into that a little bit. Um, an, another part of your rap you're talking about was like the state of China under lockdown. You're talking about divorce rate surging, um, economics, uh, the economy is tanking. Um, and this is where I kind of want to include um, some questions from social media. I, I reached out and uh, we had a question from Justin CV. He said, I would like to know how reopening the Chinese economy is actually going. What is life like? Will things ever be the same? And how will they be different? So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so you know, China's economy in in February basically ground to a complete halt. Um, hotel occupancy rates, which last year were you know eighty five percent or so, ninety percent in the last couple of years, yeah. uh, hotel occupancy rates went to single digits. You know, 
five to 10%. And, and a good chunk of the, of that occupancy was actually hotels being used as quarantine facilities. So uh, it, that's just one indicator, like all sales offices for property developers uh, were shut in 65 cities in China. So, you know, there's zero, zero activity happening in the property sector, which is the largest sector in the economy. Uh, auto sales were down 90%, you know, so you just had massive collapse in economic activity because no one was allowed to go outside. You had extremely strict, not just in Wuhan where it originated or Hubei province, obviously there was massive lockdown right. in those cities, but even in Beijing, uh, family and, and many cities across China, families weren't allowed to go outside of their residential compounds. There was uh, there was a quota like one, one member of the household a day could go out for the essential supplies. Wow. So it, it was much stricter than even what we are seeing in the U S at the moment, uh, yeah. in terms of, in terms of lockdown and that, you know, what that did was, uh, was really put a handle and, and look, there's a lot of arguments about the data in China and are they reporting accurately? Sure. Let's just assume they're not. Um, yeah. but I think, I think directionally we can assume it's kind of like China's GDP, like the, the exact number is probably not correct, but directionally it is accurate uh, of what's happening, the trend. And so, you know, from that perspective, Xi Jinping would not have gone to Wuhan to visit if if they did not feel confident that they really had a handle on this thing, because politically that would be, that would be a bad move. And, um, and he went to Wuhan a few weeks ago and then they, they opened up Wuhan and Hubei, which again, they would not have done if they didn't feel confident about their ability to, to, to keep this under control and where the trends are headed. So, you know that the, the the very severe lockdown worked. Now there is a risk of a second wave, and you know you can get into into what that risk is and how you control for that. That's another question, but it has worked. And the one other thing I would say, and you and he asked how the economy is doing now. Um, so just referencing uh, some of those statistics. So one of the hotel companies that I know well, they're back to sixty percent occupancy. Um, oh. You know, in the last few weeks. Uh, properties, those property sales offices, I've talked to some of the developers, 99% of the offices are back open and foot traffic is, uh, is close to where it was pre-crisis. Actual purchases are still, uh, still about, uh, 70% of what they were year on year, uh, you know, uh, March of, uh, of, of, of last year, but they're expecting by May to basically have normalized. So, wow. you know. Yeah, and auto sales are still down, maybe forty percent instead of eighty or ninety percent. So, so things are recovering, and I think over the next couple of months, if they are successful at preventing a second wave, uh, we'll see that normalization trend continue. And that's one of the reasons why you see Chinese equities have outperformed global equities uh, significantly in the last couple of months. And so, one of the lessons we learn, and there's a great article about this on Medium. dot uh, com. But one of the lessons we learn is that actually the more aggressive, because there's this sort of debate in the U.S., like, you know, is the, is the cure worse than the disease in terms right, of, you know, right. we've the heard economy. that. Yeah. Right. And actually what you, what you, what you learn when you analyze these episodes, not just in the current pandemic, but in past pandemics, uh, the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic is a really interesting case study because different U.S. cities uh, took different approaches to the lockdown and the ones yeah. that were much more aggressive. Uh, so doing it earlier and, and deeper uh, in terms of the policy lockdown uh, had the fastest economic uh, growth and recovery coming out of the crisis. And the ones that sort of said, well, we want to make sure we don't kill economic growth actually had the 
the worst time from a, an economic uh, growth perspective afterwards. So I think that's the lesson that we should learn is let, let's, I mean, we obviously want to reopen the economy as, as, right, right. Uh, as fast as possible, but you, you want to do it in a way that's not going to cause this start and stop, which then hits confidence and, and a bunch of other, you know, issues. Well, and, and to extend that further, uh, here's another question from uh, Peter Fillerup, who's saying, any recommendations how we should behave to avoid rocking the boat too much as we, relearn, as we return to full operating economy? Intentionally ease back into things or just rip off the Band-Aid and get back to usual? Well, so what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think that's 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 a that's a bit, that's a trillion dollar question. But I think the answer <laughs> from from the lessons I just alluded to is you don't just rip the Band-Aid off and go back to what you were doing. Um, you know, some people say, oh, like the world's sort of permanently changed and we'll never go back to the way we used to do things. I, I disagree with that. I think generally, you know, humans are social social beings and we need to be together and, and most of the practices that were, you know, that are in place now uh, will, will eventually fade away once there's a vaccine and we have a handle on this thing. However, um, you know, as, as the economy is, you know, certain sectors and geographies are, are reopened to normalized activity, the key is that the preventative measures need to stay in place. So wearing masks, which is a normal thing in Asia, Yes, uh, should true. probably right. That's that's something Asian 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 people do all the time, even pre-COVID. That's something that probably Americans should think about doing more often um, yeah. uh, going forward. Obviously, washing hands, they're using hand sanitizer, something that people will be more accustomed to now on a more frequent basis. And uh, and 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 then I think also, you know, if you look at the Australian government's response to this, they've basically said we're going to take six months to gradually reopen the economy, and they have depending on the sector's importance, depending on the tracing and the testing that they have, contact tracing and testing they have, uh, ability to implement in certain regions. So some regions and some sectors will open first and they'll see how that goes and then they'll open other regions and other sectors. And so they're taking this sort of you know, strategic kind of six month view to reopening the economy and they have the ability, and you know, if you do it that way, then you're, you're managing the expectations along the way and then you can also manage the, the setbacks in such a way that the, 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 the growth path is sort of gradual in an upward direction. If you rip the Band-Aid off, then yeah. people's expectations about what they can do revert back to what they used to do. And then you get these second and third waves and these surges that then require, again, very aggressive policy lockdown. And then the expectations for consumers and businesses uh, suddenly go into reverse. And that kind of volatility is actually much more damaging to, to the economy in the long run. So the smart approach would be, first of all, I think it's, and it's not normal for Americans. It's difficult to sort of accept, but the smart approach would be to, to allow, and I know Google and Apple have been working on some technology, but to allow a little bit more intervention as the Hong Kong government has requested, uh, not necessarily this 14 day in-home, you know, geotrack lockdown, but more intervention yeah. where the government can, can track maybe through some nonprofit organizations, so it's not government-owned data, but track for temporary period, you know, uh, location and health status, and so that when micro, um, you know, kind of outbursts of uh, of uh, um, you know of the of the virus being transferred among micro populations, if that happens, then they can lock those areas down, um, and so that that that's going to be difficult politically to right. to get through, but 
in reality, that would be the best way to sort of say, okay, now if we contract this, then we can be more aggressive about opening the economy. If, 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 if Americans don't really want to allow that kind of access, then you have to be a lot more cautious about how you open the economy. So it's a bit of a trade-off and, um, you know, countries with, uh, with more political control over their population have that flexibility or that, that, uh, you know, that uh, luxury of, of maybe opening faster because they can control the data and see what's happening. Well, and speaking of governments that control their people, we had uh, somebody from Facebook, Mahi Rajan, who is living in India in lockdown right now. And she wants to know, how will the lockdown initiative by India affect the Indian economy? In other words, how will a lockdown affect a developing country and its economy? Is it a situation where we we are stuck between the devil and the deep sea? How, how, yeah, how do you respond yeah. to that? <laughs> it, it, yeah. that? It is a rough situation right there. Mahi, you know, India, sure. in, yeah, it is. And I, I'm, I'm sympathetic. I have some colleagues in India who, who are going through that at the moment. And, um, you know, India is so tough. Um, because of the population size, because of the population density in the urban areas, um, and because the the healthcare system in any developing country, India is the example here, um, is just not set up. I mean, if the U.S. health system is under siege the way it is, you can imagine if this pandemic spread in India, yeah. th- there would just be no capacity. And so, um, so far, fortunately, perhaps the heat helps, um, certainly in southern India, um, but, uh, but the, the number, and, but, and it's probably also significantly underreported because uh, the testing capacity there is extremely limited as well. Sure. But the numbers, at least in, in, the official numbers, are relatively low so far. And so the government realized the reason why they, that they put the country on total lockdown is they realized if we don't act super aggressively and this thing spreads, then we're, the, you know, as I alluded to earlier, then we're toast. And, uh, yeah. and so I think they did the right thing, but the problem is they did it. So they did it so suddenly there was no warning. So they, I think it was on like the same day they said that like, as of midnight tonight, you know, <laughs> transportation is shut. Well, the problem is India has hundreds of millions of migrant workers who have no, pl- you know, once they're laid off from their jobs or their, their, their business, their, their, their uh, companies close or wherever they're working and they have nowhere to stay and they have no income. If they can't get home to the countryside or wherever they live, they're they're now homeless, and so there's a massive problem of millions of homeless people in India who who can't who aren't allowed to cross you know provincial or state borders to get back to their homes because of the suddenness of this lockdown, um, and and so you know there's so many complications in 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 that context and in a place like India, um, you know, the, the, the slums is another one where there's just no way to manage it. There, there was an outbreak in a slum in yeah. Mumbai and there's just no way to manage that. So they just, they just locked down the entire, the entire sort of neighborhood. Um, so there's not a lot of great answers, right. you know, easy answers for India. I think the lockdown, the difficult lockdown is the right approach. What India has not been doing as aggressively as other countries is the the economic support, the fiscal and monetary support from the government has been pretty mild in India relative to other countries, and they're going to have to significantly expand um, their spending. Um, uh, so, you know, we'll see if they do that, but that would be the one thing that they could do to offset some of the pain in the meantime. And then I, I've got another uh, person from uh, Cambodia. This is Chai Liang Sui. Um, he, so he currently lives in Cambodia and 
So speaking of China and the U.S., he said, what should the big concerns be for citizens of Cambodia if these two great countries stop trading with each other? Now, I don't think we're going to stop trading, but but anyway, what what do you have to say about the, the sentiment there? It's a huge question for everyone in the, in, in, in the Asia Pacific region, in, in, in particular, small countries in Southeast Asia like Cambodia, Vietnam, and others. The question is, you know, how, how do we fit into this this a geopolitical and economic squabble between the United yeah. States and China. And, and there's kind of two aspects. One is positive, one is negative. The positive is that actually if the U.S. decides, it, 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 you know, if it, if it maintains the tariffs it has in place or increases them because China's not able to live up to its, its phase one deal terms or whatever, that's positive for other low, you know, low-cost manufacturing uh, countries uh, in Southeast Asia because they get to replace some of that capacity and that helps their economies grow. Vietnam oh. is, is actually a prime example uh, really? where where uh, where manufacturers are saying, okay, we need to either for political reasons or for economic reasons, we need to um, we need to de-risk the China factor. Too much of our supply capacities in China, we need to go to other countries. And and, and Vietnam has been one of the big beneficiaries of that. Um, Cambodia. Less so because it's not as organized a, a manufacturing base as right, Vietnam right. is, but there still there still will be some benefits um, to 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 countries in and around the region. the the ch- The more challenging aspect is the geopolitical one, where uh, China, as it gets bigger, it becomes an, a more and more important trading partner for these countries, and in many cases has eclipsed the United States uh, in terms of its importance. So there's there's a wariness in these countries like Vietnam, even though it's communist and China is communist. There's actually a, a, a meaningful tension between them, and Vietnam has cozied up to the United States politically to offset that China influence in the region. And but a lot of countries from Vietnam to Australia to Singapore to Japan are being are being forced into uh, some difficult trade-offs geopolitically as they sort of recognize the importance and the, the essential relationship they have with China um, from an economic standpoint, but a geopolit- from a geopolitical perspective, they much prefer kind of the, the relationship with the U.S. and the U.S. acting as that stabilizing force in Asia. And so threading that needle is very difficult for many of these uh, countries and, and will be a, a, a sensitive area for, uh, you know, for, for years to come. And I mean, just one example is is China's claims in the South China Sea and around Asia in terms of territorial waters, right? Huge disputes with Vietnam and other countries on on issues like that. Well, let's let's go to a, another direction. Um, well, the next part of your rap that I thought was interesting was well, you brought in the politics a little bit. Uh, Don spews uh, spurious facts and uh, something about a. Uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, can you say that yeah, line one more time? Because the Don spews facts that be so spurious, at least the Fauci by his side, that man's the nerdiest. <laughs> yeah, let's get into the political part of things. Um, a lot of people are curious of how what the Trump factor will be in all of this. Uh, Derek Entz, um, he said that he would like your opinion on how all of this, including Trump's rhetoric, might affect the U.S.-China relationship when it's over, especially in terms of trade relations? Yeah, this is a huge issue. It's a great question <laughs> by Derek. And I, I um, so let's set the stage. Uh, Donald Trump uh, has um, really confronted China, uh, you know, like him or not, 
<laughs> for so many different reasons. Uh, he, one has to give him credit that he's kind of been the first U.S. politician, first U.S. president to really consistently confront China on, uh, on a, a range of issues that um, the past administrations kind of in the, in the philosophy out of D.C. in general for decades had been, let's engage with China. And yeah, we don't like how they act in this area or that area, you know, IP theft or human rights or whatever the issue was. Um, But uh, we, you know, we believe it kind of the long game is what's important. And as China um, liberalizes their economy, it will kind of naturally democratize and will think more alike politically, et cetera. And that looked kind of accurate, um, you know, through the 80s, 90s, and then into the 2000s, it was like, ah, we're not sure, but it still looks like the best approach. There wasn't any significant signs that was the wrong approach. And then I think Xi Jinping's administration over the last uh, eight years has has uh, caused some serious rethink on, on that approach and on what China's intentions are uh, in terms of its domestic politics as well as geopolitics. In Asia and more broadly, and um, and then China also consequentially has grown a lot. It's a, you know its economy and its standing in the world has 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 grown, and so it's no longer kind of you know um, the, the the second fiddle. There's there's a competitive dynamic there that's also caused the U.S. to sit up and take take note in a way that it hadn't had to in the past, and all of that led to sort of Donald Trump's approach, which was uh, more confrontational um, and uh, and really hit on some key issues trade the trade war became kind of the the headline of that but there was a, there there were a lot of underlying nuanced issues around technology transfer and ip theft and uh, espionage in us uh, academic institutions and you know a whole range of issues uh, the department of justice is in the middle of an ongoing nationwide investigation into some of these uh, these practices and uh, uh, so there's a lot of stuff in wrapped up in what was pre-COVID already a more fraught relationship, um, yeah. and uh, the tenor in DC around China—it's interesting. It's like the one issue with all the kind of nasty partisan politics happening, uh, you know, in the last four years in DC. Uh, the China issue is the one where there's basically consensus now. Nobody really disagrees on the need to be tougher on China, and that's yeah. going to be one of the big one of the big issues in the presidential debates as and when they happen is um, right. is uh, Trump's desire to sort of, you know, uh, uh, show that Biden was, you know, in the Obama administration, they were friends with China and not tough on China. So that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Oh, uh, sure. So, so all of that's uh, prelude to the actual answer, which is it's going to get worse because of COVID. And this is not just a U.S.-China thing. All over the world, there's a lot of fingers being pointed and blame being pointed at China for their initial handling and lack of disclosure around uh, the the, the uh, coronavirus and um, and the the knock-on imp- impact of that uh, on the global economy, and you know some of that's fair. Um, yeah. What's not What's not great is the kind of it does fuel in in some places some kind of you know unfortunate uh, underlying you know racial instincts where people will you know attack a, somebody who maybe not even Chinese, but looks, you know, Chinese yeah. as Asian or something because they, 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 you know, they're angry about uh, the impact of the virus on their country or something. And this is, this is obviously not uh, helpful and, and not where we want to go. And a bit like the, the, the backlash against Muslims in the post nine 11 era. But, um, 
But, uh, you know, more importantly, the, the political impact on the U.S.-China relationship, the trade relationship, is going to be negative. Uh, it, there's actually, there was a Harris poll uh, that came out recently, which was quite interesting. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just share a couple of statistics. So they asked, yeah, sure. do, you, do you favor or oppose tougher trade policy? And so they asked it, kind of, there's the overall data, and then there's by Republicans, Democrats, and independents. And it says, do you, do you favor or oppose tougher trade policies that Trump enforced, so it's kind of setting a baseline. And overall, 70% favored. Uh, 90% of Republicans, 53% of Dems. So it was kind of split for the Dems, but it was heavily favored of the Republicans. Should China be required to pay for the spread of the virus? This is an interesting question. Uh, It was was more split, so it was 54% said yes. Um, 70% of Republicans said yes. Only 40% of Democrats and independents were split. Should President Trump take tougher, softer, or, or the same position on China? Um, overall, said tougher. Thirty-five percent said the same. Only seventeen percent said said softer. Um, if China fails, this is so. This is more direct to Derek's question. If China fails to purchase the goods it promised to buy in Phase One of the trade deal, which, by the way, is 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 likely given what's going on in in in, in the global economy, it, it probably will have to delay or default on some of those commitments. Should the U.S. reimpose tough tariffs? Overall, 73% said yes. And there was a majority across all categories, uh, Republicans, Democrats, and independents. Uh, Do you think overall U.S. companies should continue to manufacture in China or pull back? Overall, 71% said pull back. And that was consistent across all all three categories of uh, political uh, interests. If China is underreporting COVID-19 case or deaths, then should Trump impose economic sanctions? 37% said yes. Should Congress vote for economic sanctions? Another 43% yes. Only 19% said no action. So there's clear consensus that uh, in the United States, even across party lines, that they want some accountability um, you, you know, from China. And this is true in Europe as well. There's sort of anger all over the world. So you know, it's going to cause uh, some re- assessment of the the um, strategy around manufacturing and outsourcing and supply chains uh, particularly for medical supplies not just masks and and the like but uh, you know 70 percent of antibiotics are sourced from China um, and and the US has almost no production capacity for that well oh, and, and, okay. and actually a, a Chinese economist uh, who's very well known got his PhD at Harvard said recently to uh, uh, to some Chinese political leadership, you know, we'll we'll see if the U.S. Dis- decides to uh, to pursue more trade actions against us. Uh, they'll see just how fragile their medical supply chain is. You know, basically, we can we <laughs> can weaponize. Tat, yeah, we yeah. can weaponize our our control of of of, of global medical supplies and, and and medicines. So, this is a real issue that Congress is starting to look at, and I think will be politicized, uh, especially in this election year. Wow. Um, here's another political question. This is from Christina Levitt. She says, how does having a neoliberalism structure affect our response? And is it as bad as it was in the late 1920s? What economic structure would have been rocked the least under this pressure? Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of generically taking the U.S. Um, uh against China using that that comparison or that framework to answer this question I think is helpful. So the yeah. US, you know, and we alluded to this uh, you know, a few minutes ago in in the sense that, you know, China has this sort of techno surveillance state capability that is currently is not 
you know, available to, to, to the U.S. government. Maybe they will try and implement that. But let's assume that's really difficult because of our political culture and, and, and social culture in the United States. Uh, right, in right. China, that's sort of the norm that, that already existed. And so what does that allow China to do? It allows them, A, to implement these measures, the, the lockdown measures, much more aggressively. Uh, and people can't really complain too much. Or if they do, they nope. sort of get locked up. Um, B, once they decide the coast is clear, it gives them the ability to track uh, contact trace, et cetera, to quickly lock down on any, you know, small uh, outbursts of, of virus transmission that they might find. Um, and three, as a result, it allows them to to restart their economy with more confidence and less risk of significant second waves. Uh, and then fourth, from an economic policy perspective, we, you know, to be fair, we are seeing some pretty aggressive action in the U.S., but it does require bi bipartisan agreement and there was some delays to the initial stimulus coming out of right. Congress as a result of that. In China, uh, they don't all agree. I think one of the common misperceptions about China is that it's a one-party system, so they can do whatever they want as soon as they want to. There actually is debate and discussion within the Communist Party on on policy, and there are different factions that believe different have different sort of economic okay. philosophies. But but at the end of the day, it is a one-party state, and 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 when the, when a crisis happens, it's much easier to coalesce around a direction from a policy standpoint uh, and and you know and so fiscal policy and monetary policy are basically the same thing because uh, the government controls the banking system um, not just the central bank but actually the bulk of the actual commercial banks in the system are, are controlled by either the the federal government or by local governments um, and so you know there's much more influence and ability to drive an economy in, in, in the right direction in, in this kind of a crisis. But, you know, to, to the counter argument to that is, well, with such state control and in, in normal times, so in a crisis, it can be quite helpful, but in normal times you lose, um, important dynamics, uh, like creativity and innovation. And let me be clear, there is creativity and innovation in China, but in a state run economy, which China is kind of uh, sort of maybe half state run, half you know private sector and innovative, but in yeah. a in a state influenced economy, you 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 your incentives change and you do lose some of, some of that dynamism and and so uh, there are pros and cons to that to that sort of political system and and the economic policy that comes out of it. Yeah, you see the utility, but we we are proud of the things we produce as America, the creativity, the entrepreneurship, and things like that. Is, is that that's kind of what you're saying, right? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, and I and I think and actually even if you, if you look at Europe, you know, I mean, it, it's it's creativity and it's innovation, it's it's labor productivity is a factor. I mean, even in Europe, in, again, you get you get innovation and creativity everywhere. But in Europe, it's very hard to go bankrupt. You know, you, the U.S. bankruptcy law allows uh, failed businesses to close and people to sort of move on with their lives. Yeah. Um, in in places like China, the bankrupt bankruptcy cases are you know, on a relative basis, few and far between, and you and you get this sort of zombie company effect where banks are, you know, uh, supporting these companies so they don't go under because there's a political mandate to keep people employed or whatever it is. In the U.S., actually, we're starting to see a little bit of that in the U.S. where the government's saying, "Hey, if you keep your people employed, we'll 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 pay them or we'll." You know, uh, yeah. But, and still in the U.S., the the approach is much more leaning towards incentivization of kind of liquidation of businesses when they're failing and. It hurts. The pain is is more uh, abrupt and acute initially, but then when things come back, then the the economy has more um, 
uh, more flexibility and more uh, natural inclination to sort of bounce back where some of these other uh, companies and economies may have been accumulating bad debts, et cetera, over time. And, and it, you know, this happened in Japan, it's happened in China, and uh, Europe to some extent also suffers from some of those kind of slightly more socialist leaning uh, economic policies that make it a little bit less dynamic and vibrant uh, uh, coming out of these crises. Got it. Um, well, just one more question um, uh, from Facebook. This is from Zach Stuckey. He says, do you feel the Hong Kong independence movement, we haven't been talking about that for a while, and uh, subsequent COVID-19 response, quarantine, et cetera, has impacted the perception of the Communist Party of China with the Chinese people? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're kind of two two separate things. Uh, sure, okay. But, 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 they have, but they have maybe a similar impact. Yeah, so the first um, first on the Hong Kong protests, yeah, uh, I, I I admit I for, like I heard Hong Kong on the radio the other day, and I'm like, oh yeah, whatever happened about that? Anyway, yeah, go I mean, on. That's the amazing thing is like you know it was only literally like six months ago we were in the middle of all that, and it feels like you know years ago because of how much the world has changed in the last few months. But yeah, um, yeah, the the protests completely changed Hong Kong, and I think have done so on a on a somewhat permanent basis. Uh, but the extradition law that was proposed, which which sparked these protests, um, has uh, there was already kind of an evolving, you know, negative view uh, uh, within you know the Hong Kong population about the increasing control of the Communist Party in China, in Hong Kong. Yeah. And to be clear for listeners, Hong Kong is legally a part of China. It is owned, quote unquote, by China, or it is it is part of the Chinese nation. But it's been designated a special administrative region, which is largely self-governed uh, yeah. and uh, has its own tax regime. It doesn't pay taxes to the central government, etc. And that's that's sort of was the agreement for at least 50 years uh, after the handover from the Brits in 1997. So through 2047, yeah. it should have that status of one country but two systems. And um, and the, the concern has been over the last decade that there's been increasing encroachment um, by the, the Communist Party in Hong Kong affairs, um, directly and indirectly, in ways that have made that have upset the population. And this yeah. uh, this uh, this bill uh, the the um, uh, uh, the, the, the treaty uh, that was proposed uh, really triggered a lot of anger and frustration in these massive protests. And they went away kind of towards the end of last year. Uh, there was a little bit at the beginning of this year, and then the virus has obviously kept everybody indoors. The expectation yeah. because of the political cycle uh, here in Hong Kong uh, with some elections coming up uh, for the Legislative Council in September is that those will ramp back up when once people are allowed to go go back outside. So oh, really? the, okay. Yeah. So the view towards China and the Communist Party is is very negative in Hong Kong. It's not going to be forgotten. That, that we're not. It's not going to be forgotten. <laughs> well, or worsened, do you think? Uh, well, like so that's what I'm going to say. You know, tying it tying it to COVID. You know, one of the kind. Of, uh, it's it's funny because it's not racist, but there's like there's a definitely a. Uh, a and it's not ethnic because because they're, they're, everyone is Chinese. Although there are different <laughs> there there are different minorities within within the Chinese um, you know uh, country, I guess uh, Greater China. But but Hong Kong people look down on mainland Chinese people uh, as if it was uh, a racism kind of thing. Kind of, yeah. It's sort of like okay. it's like Northern Italians look down on Southern Italians. You know? Okay, there's, sure. There's this sort of like 
they're lower than us. You know, the, the Hong Kongers think that. Oh, NorCal, Chinese. SoCal. Got it. Yeah, NorCal, SoCal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's but, what but, I could relate to. Exactly. And, you know, the, um, the, the Hong Kongers think that Chinese people are dirty, that they're uncouth, they're, they're impolite. Um, they, um, you know, un- they're unrefined. It's dangerous in China. Like one of my colleagues who's a young Hong Kong uh, professional, her, you know, she had to go to China for a business trip. Her mom was like, be careful there. Like, uh, you know, the people there don't care, you know, are, are, it's dangerous. People don't, they don't care about, uh, you know, other people. And like, if you get run over, then the truck will run you back over to make sure you're dead. So there's no <laughs> lawsuit. And this, this comes from actual, you know, things, you know, episodes that actually happen in China, but these are sort of, you know, these are the things that Hong Kong people have formed their view um, yeah. of China on uh, rather than having a more nuanced view and, and, and understanding, you know, that China is a big place for a lot of different types of people and, and that it's evolving and, you know, and, and growing and maturing in different ways. And so that, that's, that was kind of ensconced over the last couple of decades, that view, and it got worse as Chinese people got really rich, you know, in the last 10, 20 years and started coming to Hong Kong and buying a lot of luxury goods and sort of you know, the, the, nouveau, the, the natural inclination for nouveau riche is to sort of splash your cash. And that didn't sit well with, with Hong Kongers and it made property prices go up because Chinese were buying all the you know, properties here. And so there was yeah. just, there's been a lot of things that have, have led to this uh, negative perspective. And now COVID, of course, adds to it. Um, although Hong Kong has controlled it quite, quite well, there's only been a thousand cases and only four or five deaths. Uh, so wow. they, they've done, they've done a great job uh, of, of controlling it. But it, but again, it, it, it's meant that the economy, which collapsed in the second half of last year will continue in recession uh, for quite some time uh, as a result of that. So it's, it's, it's messy in Hong Kong. Uh, the relationship with mainland China is complicated and, and probably will become more so. A messy. And that, that's a, that's a word that I, that I think is a reoccurring theme in in all of this. But uh, let's let's go back to I kind of like how your rap did end on a happy note um, about the unity. In fact, I would love if you just re-rap uh, the unity part. I that message. I let's talk about that in a second. But but hit it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Uh... Everyone in this together, you see? So we beat this first person with a unified we. That's unity. I said, that's unity. And that's the cure for this awful disease. So I've been heard and I've been seen. Till next time, I'm Big Daddy Quarantine. So unity. It looks good. It feels good. But what does it actually look like in your perspective? That's that's what I want to know. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, like, uh, well, I saw there's been so, so many fun kind of memes and, you know, quotes and things online about this. But. Somebody said, you know, like, uh, you know, the greatest generation in the United States is, you know, the, during World War II and how they all rallied and went off to fight for war, you know, and then dot, dot, dot. Like, all we have to do is sit on our sofas. You know, like, that's, <laughs> we can that's do the this. sacrifice. Yeah, that's the sacrifice <laughs> we've been asked to make is just sit on our sofas. And, and I, you know, so that, like, that's the basic, you know, that's the basic thing we can do. But I think in these crises, um, I think people naturally do kind of, throw in together and come together and, and, and recognize that this is a time, you know, to find our, our common humanity and find our ability to, um, to come together, you know, across communities and, and states and countries and and cultures and and ethnicities. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a lot of strength that comes from that. Um, you know, in the post nine 11 era, there was, there was some of that as well. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what I think we should be focusing on. Like, how can we help a by, you know, by doing what you're asked to do uh, is, yeah. is the first thing, but, but sec, you know, secondly, by considering ways to, to pitch in, like, you, you know, uh, if you're, if, if you see, a, you know, uh, some hospitals are short on supplies and, somebody you know puts out a GoFundMe like you know put in 10 bucks or whatever like there's mm-hmm. just there's stuff that we can do I think um, you know some uh, the, the the Pope called for some you know global uh, uh, meditation at 8 p.m. you know so for everybody to kind of tune in you know the LDS church uh, called for a global fast on Good Friday yeah. like there's just there's different things people can do but I think I think having your heart heart in the right place and focusing on um, you know just being uh, helpful and thoughtful about the people around you and uh, in your communities is probably the way the way to tackle this thing. Well, thank you, Andrew. I I appreciate so much of uh, of what you've contributed to um, and being kind of an example of 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 owning this quarantine for you and and you know writing some raps and, and things like that. Um, and I also uh, I feel like in the the exit music here. With your permission, I would like to throw in the your Michael Bublé parody of everything as you <laughs> ordered hotel food. I just love that. Um, so, so yeah, for me, I, just caveat: I'm not a very good singer, so that's the only thing. That's the only thing for <laughs> listeners listeners to uh, put your earplugs in. But yeah, that no, was fun. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, uh, Andrew Doherty, an economist and rapper, I, this has been such a great opportunity, so insightful. And p- these were genuine questions that people across the world have had. And I feel like we've we've gotten answers. We're working through this. This is messy, but we can come through with unity. Uh, Big Daddy Doe, thank you. Thanks, Sean. Great chatting with you. That was my interview with Andrew Doherty. And here's Andrew's song he wrote to order food while in quarantine. Hi, Heidi. Yeah, I'd like to order some room service. Uh, yes. May I take your order? Sure. Um, if you don't mind, I'm just gonna I'm gonna sing my order to you. So just bear with me here. Yes. This is a little Michael Bublé song I wrote about breakfast here at the Marriott. Hope you enjoy. I'll try muesli with the mixed berries and some danishes. Top with two cherries. The whole song is on YouTube, and I put the link in the show notes. Egg on the potatoes and fries. And one more thing I put in the show notes. During the interview, Andrew talked about some ways we can come together in unity in this pandemic. We also talked about the rough state of migrant workers in India. Recently, I donated to a GoFundMe to support a humanitarian organization which provides food to people in slums who can't afford it during India's lockdown. This includes migrant workers who can't return to their homes because transportation is completely shut down. SAPID, which is an Indian organization that will be providing this food to people in slums, is an organization that I'm actually really familiar with. For those who know about my work in India, this is the organization I built composting toilets with. $10 to this campaign will feed a family for a week. And as I record this, the campaign is approaching their goal, but it's not quite there yet. And exceeding that goal will just allow them to feed more people. So if you'd like to contribute to that, the link for that is in the show notes. Pickled squid, please, oh, and some miso soup. And 
add in some fried egg noodles too. And in this crazy life, and through these crazy times and quarantine, it makes me sing, since breakfast is free, you know I will order everything. And thank you all for listening to Ununinformed. If you listen to the new season episode, you'll know I'm looking for four ways that you can contribute to this season of Ununinformed. One, submit questions for upcoming episodes. Two, tell me a story about your experience with the pandemic. Three, submit your original songs about COVID-19. A few people have done this already, and I will start featuring those songs starting next episode. And four, if you're into trivia, I'm doing a Corona quiz on Facebook Live in a little bit, and I want you to apply to be on the game show. So how do you submit for these four things? I put all that info in the show notes. You've been listening to Ununinformed. I'm Sean Seavey. Thanks, everybody. So please sing along. Cause I've ordered everything Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd like my eggs La, 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 la Fei-chang la I'd like my eggs La, 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 la Te-bien-la Uh, did did you catch the order? That is a really nice song, sir. But uh, I've tried to pick up everything, but uh, I'm afraid I may miss something. Sure. Oh, so I'll, I'll need to like repeat the order for you. Yeah, let's hear what you got.